let's look at specifically for live hacking events. So, you know, you mentioned that you're focusing on high and critical bugs and on and live hacking events, you don't get to pick your target, right? Which I understand you're normally pretty picky about because yep. you have a specific set of, um, of, uh, a very particular set of skills, uh, that, that <laughs> I, would, I was going to say if you weren't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> What's up, y'all? We've got an excellent episode for you today. Our guest is Alex Chapman, a, a bug bounty hunter renowned for his critical vulnerabilities at live hacking events and his extremely, extremely detailed reports. Um, we talked to him about everything ranging from his red teaming experience to how to be a full-time bug bounty hunter to how to find these crazy vulns, and I think you're really going to enjoy the episode. But before we dive in, I want to remind you to head over to ctbb.show and drop your email there. We're trying to grow that newsletter so that we can stay in touch with you all and so that you don't miss an episode. Without further ado, Alex Chapman. Alex, thanks for coming on the pod, dude. Hey, how are you doing? Pretty great, dude. Um, this is going to be a really cool episode, I think. I've, I've uh, admired your hacking from afar and from close uh, at, a, at a bug collision in January. Um, and so I'm really, I'm excited this time to pick your brain and kind of kind of uh, get some of those techniques out of you. Um, I was hoping we could start today a little bit with a little bit of your InfoSec history and kind of talk to us about how the hacker that is now AJX Chapman has evolved to where he is today. Yeah, sure. So uh, I guess I'm a bit of an old timer, uh, certainly in the, in the bug bounty crowd. Um, I've been doing kind of in professional security for, I guess must be at least 16 years by now. Wow. Um, kind of started straight out of university professionally, but mm. had an interest from when I was about what, 12, 13, as soon as I could That's the age, learn to man. program. Yeah, yeah, as soon as I could learn to program, I kind of uh, wanted to know how to break things. Mm -hmm. uh, and there wasn't as much information around back then, so um, kind of had to scrape pieces together from here and there, and then um, kind of decided it'd be a good idea to do uh, a science degree, as you do. Mm. Uh, hated it, absolutely hated it. Yep. Um, <laughs> relatable. But then yeah. found out uh, towards the end of my degree. Yeah, relatable, yeah. for sure. Um, but then at one point, we had a guest lecture uh, from somebody who worked for one of the big four um, who was a pen tester. I was like, well, you can actually get paid to do this Ooh. sort of thing. Mm. So that was, from then on, that was my goal. Uh, straight out of the university, I was into big four because I knew they did pen testing. Right. Um, now, when you say big four, is that, you're talking about big four accounting firms? Is that what you're yes, talking about? Yeah. So okay. I went to work for Deloitte. Okay. Sure. Um, in their, specifically in their security team. Mm. Uh, I was doing pen testing from then on. So I did about I don't know, a decade of pen testing, three years at Deloitte, moved to a smaller uh, consultancy. Uh, and that's where I picked up kind of red teaming and security research. Uh, knew nothing about bug bounty at this point. So this was going back to, I don't know, maybe 2016, 2017. Okay. All right. Um, and then went to work for Yahoo. 
Nice, man. I feel like a lot of a lot of good hackers kind of go through Yahoo at some point. I don't know if it's just like the time period of like, you know, Yahoo was a big name earlier on in the in the bug bounty scene or in the pen testing yeah, scene. But um, you know, I feel like I, I see so many people that have, have gone through there. So I've got a couple questions for you. You know, you, you mentioned that you started programming early on. Um, you know, was that out of it, but you didn't really get introduced to hacking until later. It, it, is that right? Or were you studying programming that whole time? Or was there a little bit of hacking in the youth as well? Or? Uh, certainly a, a little bit of hacking. Yeah. So kind of uh, looking at war games and... Um, oh, sure, sure, sure. Kind of Crackme's... Uh, Crackme.de used to exist. I'm not oh, yeah. pretty sure that's been dead for a long time. But, uh, yeah, I don't know if that's still a thing. Was, uh, so, so kind of... Interesting. A lot of reverse engineering, huh. um, specifically on on crack me. So a kind of a legal outlet for uh, trying to learn these skills. Gotcha. So um, so it was in college where you were introduced to being able to do this as a job. That's what you were saying. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I never in kind of a million years when I was in my early teens, I thought I could get could get paid to do this, and then uh, just had this epiphany moment. I was like, I can do this. Yeah. So so that was my my mission from then on. Yeah, nice. dude. That's awesome. That's, that's so cool. I, I, I sort of remember. I remember that moment for me as well, being like, "Wow, you know, this is actually a career path that I can go down," which was really cool. Because at the same, you know, I, I started when I was young as well, at twelve or thirteen, and I kind of went down the black hat route for a while. And I was like, but then I sort of caught a conscience. You know, I was like, "Oh, actually, this is really damaging systems that I'm that I'm working on, trying to cover my tracks because I wasn't necessarily good enough to." Uh, really do a good job of covering my tracks. So my, yeah, my you know, my track covering was, you know, rm-rf slash, you know? <laughs> um, and so, uh, uh, it, you know, that that's kind of when I, I pivoted off and, and, and then, you know, coming into that realization that it can actually be a, a career, man, what, what a, what a mind boggling thing. So, so you mentioned, you know, you were in CS, but you weren't, you weren't loving that. Why, what, what is your opinion on, you know, should, aspiring hackers go and get a degree versus going, you know, training themselves or going through a boot camp or what? I think my personal opinion from kind of where we are now in 20, 2023 is yeah. I wouldn't bother. Yeah. I would apply yourself, uh, learn to program. I think all hackers should know how to program at least basically. Mm -hmm. I, know a lot, I know that's a bit of a controversial um, opinion mm -hmm. in, in some circles, Yep. But, but my view on it is you should know how to program. Um, or at least should be interested in learning how to program. Sure. Let's say, let's say it like that. And just apply yourself. Blog a lot. Blog about everything you can. Mm. So I, I actually used to do used to do hiring, um, and that would be the first thing I would do. If a, if a CV passed screening, I would mm. look the person up on Twitter, try and find their blog, mm. and see what they were interested in. Yeah. Um, and people who didn't have blogs would actually be in... I would have, I would know I'd have to drill them a lot more in an interview to yeah. try and work out what their passion is and what they're interested in. Um, and again, you can make money in, in bug bounty. You're not going to start out and make the big bucks, but mm. you can get by and you can, again, build up a, uh, an effective CV saying, mm. yep, yeah, I hacked this company by this bug, this company by this bug. And um, to me, that's much more impressive these days than somebody who came out of a a degree spending all their money to get a bit of paper who actually mm. has next to no real world experience. 
Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I found that to be very true. I, I also dropped out of college. Um, and like, I mean, when I went into college, I was kind of doing some hacking adjacent stuff, like stuff that I think now would be considered under the realm of like bug bounty slash general infosec hacking. And I think that precursor knowledge really helped me find the path that I was looking for. Um, I had already been very interested in like programming and computers and that kind of stuff. And so once mm -hmm. I'd seen like this was a route that could be taken and it was like profitable and it was like very interesting and it was very in line with the stuff that I was already doing and already found a lot of enjoyment with, it just seemed like a very natural progression. Um, I'm curious like how far you sort of like deviated from what you would consider like what you were already doing to pivot into bug bounty or was it kind of that same natural progression? So going from pen testing and red teaming to bug bounty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's actually going from more of an audit um, pen test side of side of things to bug bounty is a huge world of difference. Mm. Um, but when in the kind of audit space with security, you're, you're reporting absolutely everything and looking for absolutely everything. Um, so you're reporting SSL ciphers and all the stuff that nobody cares about, has no real world impact. But if you don't report it and the, the client kind of finds out about it, you can get into real trouble. Right. Um, and so that's the kind of soul-destroying end of pen testing. Um, but then on the, the red teaming side, I actually got a lot more experience that would be more relatable to, to bug bounty. Um, and that's kind of actually trying to find and properly exploit bugs in anger, mm. um, see how far you can get with them and, and what you can actually do with it. So the bug's no longer theoretical or, or something that popped up on a scanner. You know 100% that it's there and it can be exploited for this sort of impact. Mm. Um, and that, I think, was a big learning point for me, was actually not just CVSS impact, but real-world impact. Mm. Um, yeah. So your, your scanner says this is a, a 7.2, so it's obviously high. But what does that actually give you access to? Does the business care about this thing? It was actually a third-party bit of software that, or third-party hosted thing that means nothing to them. Yeah, uh, and it's it's things like that. If you can kind of, kind of start to bring that um, experience into into the bug bounty side of things, you'll find you get a lot further as well. Yeah. Oh yeah. Did you find that your for time sure. at companies were like really helpful for figuring out that sort of security impact? Because this is something that we talked about a lot: is like CVSS versus like direct impact and understanding like security model of yeah. a company. And instead of framing your bugs so that you have like a nine <laughs> CVSS like that. You know that that's good and stuff, but it really matters more. Like, what's the actual impact? How does this affect the company? How can you frame this so that the company sees the impact the same way that you do? And do you think that like your time at companies and all the red teaming and stuff really helped with that? Yeah, huge. Uh, and that's also, I guess, on the report uh, report writing side of things as well, because uh, red team we used to write kind of ninety six hundred fifty um, page reports. Wow. Um, so. Come in, like when I first started uh, doing bug bounty, I would probably take four hours over each report I was writing. Oh, wow. <laughs> and that would be kind oh of even some basic XSS reports would take me several hours to write Jeez. because I was going into that level of detail. Okay, that was overkill. But yeah. um, kind of, there's still uh, kind of Douglas Day working with him quite a lot, and he still takes the piss out of me for uh, how, how much I write in reports and how long it takes me to write a report. It's, it's really I still funny. like to get that. Yeah, it's it's funny because I will 
I used to do like the same thing where I would go very, very in depth. I would give them like a full explanation of like, how does this work? What is this doing in the back end? And at a certain point I realized I was like, wait a second, I'm just, I'm explaining to these engineers how their own systems work. They yeah. don't mm -hmm. really need to know. Like yeah, for me, this is satisfying, but for them it's like, okay, skip, 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 skip. Oh, there's the vulnerability. Yeah. yeah. And I, that's how I fix it. Right? I, I think, I think also for us as hackers, it's it's a fun narrative to convey, you know, like, you know, it, it, I, I found, especially on reports that I'm really proud of, I'll go above and beyond on, on the, you know, or at least on the bugs that I'm really proud of. I, I go above and beyond on the report because I'm like, I want you to understand <laughs> what a masterpiece this is. Yes. <laughs> like, you know, 100%. Um, it's, yeah. it's when you get the reaction from the program team being like, wow. Yeah. Dude. <laughs> So, that, that's nearly worth any bounty. Just so say, yeah, satisfying, okay. yeah. And and I bet I bet I bet you get that a lot, Alex, because um, you it does, know, it does certainly happen. Yeah, yeah. And and the fact that you acknowledge it definitely means that it happens a lot. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, because I've been privy to some of the reports that you've you've um, you found, specifically at the GitHub event. Um, last year, just what a phenomenal performance that was. Um, yeah, so, that was. Yeah. That was a great day, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, that, that was a good day for me. Cool. I, I believe it, man. I believe it. Um, so I, I'll we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but I wanted to come back to what you said earlier about, um, you know, hackers should should be able to program or should have an interest in learning programming or should have an interest in programming. Um, could you speak to a little bit about how that, uh, just speak to that for our listeners and also, um, how how that integrates with your style of hacking, which is different than most others, I believe. Yeah, and that's that's a really good um, good question. I was reflecting on this a little bit earlier. Mm -hmm. um, I spend a significant portion of my time hacking in mm -hmm. an IDE. Mm -hmm. I'll mm -hmm. be pulling open source repos down, looking through the code, reading the code, mm -hmm. trying to find issues and, and learn basically how a module works or, or how this server works that they're doing or how the protocol works that they're, they're communicating with. Right. And without being a program, that would be next to impossible. Right. And, th and that's very specific to my, my style of hunting. But if you really want to, in my opinion, if you really want to be able to understand the bug, you need to know how, how it was implemented, what assumptions a programmer would have made to to introduce that bug and ideally how to fix it. Mm. So if you know if you know those three things, you can really hammer home what a bug is mm. and um, and start to understand where you might find it in other places as well. Mm. It's all very well kind of spraying payloads all over a website. But if you don't really understand what's going on in the back end and what's happening to those payloads, then what's the point? You're kind yeah. of blindly throwing darts. Yeah, that, that's absolutely. a really good point. I was actually just talking with um, one of my buddies who's just starting to like get into bug bounty and, and security and that kind of stuff. And he was going through the Portswigger web academy. And he was telling me today that like he's now at a point where he can, if he looks at a vulnerability, he can like 80% of the time figure out what's going on just by like sussing it out and like doing a little mm. fiddling with it. And I think that is so key to really making progress in bug bounty and hacking as a whole, but especially bug bounty, just because it takes that level of understanding of like what's actually going wrong here. How does this bug interact with other systems? What are the different possibilities for me to move laterally or vertically within this vulnerability to escalate it or to do X, Y, Z. And if you don't have that, then it's really just like 
throwing darts like blindly at the wall and just like seeing what sticks and just like yeah. hoping for the best. Yeah. Yeah, I'll I'll speak I'll speak briefly to our audience here as well. Like this is another great example of, of something that we talk about really often, which is, um, you know, you don't have to know pro programming to hack, but if you do know programming, you will find substantially better bugs because you'll understand at a deeper level what is happening and what, um, you know you'll be able to understand the exploits that are occurring and you'll be able to go for things that are a little bit deeper. Most of the bugs that Alex submits um, statistically even are, are between high and crit, right? And on the crit side of, of high, you know, between high and crit looking from his hacker one impact, right? He's, he's got a, uh, what is it? 32.7 um, impact on, on hacker Crazy. one, which is phenomenal. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, this is, just to just to be clear, you know, we we don't we we won't say that you have to know how to program to hack. But if you if you do, you will gain a, a much greater ability to find critical bugs. So that's a, that's a great takeaway. Um, and um, Alex, bringing it back around to your your sort of personal infosec history, you you worked at Yahoo slash Oath slash whatever the heck they want to call it, Verizon <laughs> Media. You know, um, yeah, it was it was an interesting time. Yeah, could you could you speak to a little bit about that experience? What were you what were you doing there, and what kind of things did you learn? So yeah, so I was on their internal red team there. Mm -hmm. um, so that was, we were kind of every month or so be given a, a an objective. Mm -hmm. um, and more often than not, it would be try and get access to the CISO's email mm -hmm. um, and show how we could do that with, with internal knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, but we used to have a, with the, with the issues that um, kind of Yahoo and had had previously, mm -hmm. there was always an assumption internally that um, internal access would be relatively easy to obtain from, mm. an, uh, mm. from an attacker's perspective. Mm. So we, we would kind of go from that, um, that position of being a, an attacker with internal access and see what we could do mm -hmm. in the internal network and then obviously work with the various teams to, to get that fixed and, and see what other kind of defense in depth we could, we could help to, uh, to implement that. Mm. So you mentioned that how much a lot of your of... Mm, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Yeah. So you mentioned that a lot of the hacking that you do is like in an IDE. It's looking at source code. It's looking at how stuff works. Um, has that always kind of been the case for you, just based on your background, or did you sort of pivot into that style of hacking after doing a lot of you know black box testing and all that kind of stuff, and just sort of figuring out that this was what you liked the most, or this was what worked the best for you? Yeah, so the, I mean, that's always been my area of interest, um, and actually, kind of going even lower down the stack into reverse engineering and and, uh, and debugging, um, and kind of binary exploitation as well. That that was always my first kind of my first infosec love, uh, as it were. But there was very little opportunity to do that whilst doing kind of the audit style pen testing that, that I started out doing. Um, so I remember for kind of months, I'd be sitting in, in a data center with no internet connectivity, um, running Nmap against kind of a, a billion and one servers. Oh man! Um, but I used that time to kind of read read off on man pages in in Linux and start to program more and tinker more. Um, and then it was like, okay, so what have I got accessible to me? I've got Nmap. Okay, so let's learn everything I can about Nmap mm. and how it works and what it's doing. And um, so it's I guess it's sort of the the interest. Um, if something piques my interest, I'll grab it hole down there and we'll just stay there for months if I can. That's so um, funny. I, I do the same thing when I'm like, whenever I'm 
in like a situation where I don't have many options for what I could be doing. I think a great example is when I'm sitting on a plane. I'll start to do things that I mm -hmm. don't normally yeah. do. So I'll like read a book <laughs> or I'll like, or I'll like start to just like read through man pages or <laughs> stuff like, like I'll just do like things that are like, you know, they consume time, but it's not necessarily the most interesting thing because I'm in this restricted sort of environment. And I feel like that's like the perfect intersection of like interest and opportunity breeds, you know, knowledge or information or however you want to, you want to build that equation. Yeah, yeah. God forbid you pay that twelve ninety nine for the internet on the, on, the, <laughs> on the flight so that you can answer emails or write tweets yeah, or the, whatever. On the eight hour flight, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it, I remember quite vividly. So, literally sitting in a data center, mm -hmm. no internet access, and the particular uh, customer I was working for wanted us to leave our hard drives um, when we were done with the job, and it, it was kind of a four week job. And I was like, well. What am I going to do with my time? Because it was literally scanning. Mm. Um, so I was like, well, I enjoy programming, so I'll just program something. Mm -hmm. And it, it was actually quite liberating writing this, writing this whole thing, knowing it was going to get thrown in the bin in a couple of weeks' time, and I couldn't take it with me. Ah, nice. Um, and that, that, was, that was programming purely for the, for the joy and, and the challenge. Wow. Nice. That's, yeah, yeah, that's, that's cool, awesome. man. That, that, is how, that is how growth happens, you know, when you're, when you're doing it for like you were saying, for the joy for, of programming, mm. for the passion of it. Um, but so, you know, this was an, in, going back to your, your experience at Yahoo and Oath, this is a, this is a red team um, sort of role. And as I understand, well, uh, my personal experience, so anecdotally, is that when I was doing internal pen tests, I wasn't doing a lot of, which is different than red team, but, you know, uh, correlated in some way. Um, I wasn't doing a lot of exploitation or exploit development. I was doing a lot of pivoting around in the internal network. I was doing a lot of escalating of privileges inside the network in order to weave my way through, right? Um, so I'm wondering, you know, how different that was at, at Yahoo internal red team um, or if that skill set was developed elsewhere. Yeah, so it was pretty similar in terms of the, the pivoting and mm. you kind of spend probably 70% of your time on post-exploitation. Mm -hmm, right. Um, and that, that was always the kind of prove, prove what you can do. You, you've exploited the system, now prove what you can do with that. Right. Um, but there, there was the kind of 30% of initial initial access, which was pretty, pretty fun exploitation. Mm. Um, I remember, I think, I'm sure it's fine to say this. Um, my, my first week there, I, I wasn't set up properly and was just given the standard laptop um so no no, no more privileges than uh, anybody else would have and by the end of the week i had a remote code execution on <laughs> yahoo laptops oh yeah that's well that's awesome. another one of those scenarios so, where, where yeah. you've got like limited you know limited scenarios and you just kind of got to work within your environment which is yeah. such a hacker mentality thing in, in so general true. as well because our whole our whole job is to take you know that that data center with no internet that laptop you know that that uh injection point where you can't use special characters and figure out a way to to break out of those constraints and and get access to you know greater privileges so i think yeah. you know i'm sure there it was applicable in so many ways but even just from a mentality perspective that'll help you grow as a hacker and and build that sort of mental resiliency you need to be able to push through almost any situation you're put in from a technical perspective yeah yeah hugely yeah yeah and it was that's uh 
Yahoo that I really first came across Hacker One as well. So that was that was my my real pivot into into bug bounty was was through Yahoo, um, mm. and I did everything I could to get on the on the team that was um, helping out with um, assessing impact of, of bugs that come in through the Yahoo program, mm. um, and that's where I started to learn some of the uh, some of the bigger names on on the Yahoo programs um, and kind of seeing some of the stuff they were doing. I was like. I could do this. Yeah, yeah. This this is starting to is starting to click. So so you you then yeah. pivoted. You know, I guess maybe you were still on the internal red team, but you also did some work with the bug bounty program for Yahoo, and that's how you got exposed to Hacker One. Yep. Yeah. Hugely. Gotcha. And, and then, then um, yeah. Next in your in your flow was that you actually went and worked with Hacker One for a little bit, right? So how did that come about? Yeah, definitely. Um, as with most uh, kind of job moves in this industry, I was in Vegas. <laughs> and um, our, our good friend uh, Martin Nickus took us out for uh, for a night at the Yahoo team out for nice. a nice meal, and nice. um, just had a bit of a chat with him afterwards. And hey, this is this like one thing sounds quite interesting, mm, and mm. Uh, I think uh, it kind of snowballed from there. And I was uh, was offered a job relatively shortly after um, after that, and um, went to went went to work for a. For Hacker One uh, in London mm. as a uh, kind of technical program manager. Mm. Uh, and how was... did you like that in in comparison to like, because leading up to this, you'd basically been doing purely technical roles, like lots of pen testing, lots of red teaming, lots of writing reports, that kind of stuff. Mm. And then you pivoted from that into like a technical adjacent role where you're managing programs. You're still very yep. involved with like security and that kind of stuff, right? But but it's it's a very different experience. What was that like? Uh, it was challenging. It was um, I knew Hacker One was a company that I wanted to be involved with, um, but it was a difficult role for me. It was a difficult leap. Um, and then, unfortunately, had some kind of my personal life took a, took a bit of a turn, and uh, that made that made work very very difficult. Mm. Um, so during my my time at Hacker One. Um, my wife and I found out we were pregnant, mm. um, but unfortunately, very soon after we found out that the uh, the baby um, had Edwards syndrome, which is um, kind of chromosomal disorder, mm. which meant they weren't weren't going to make it. Oh. Mm. That's terrible. Uh, Sorry to hear that. So that obviously took quite a lot of my uh, my attention away from my job. Mm. And uh, Hacker One were fantastic throughout the whole thing. And then um, when it came to when the baby was born. Um, I was given kind of three months paid bereavement leave mm. and uh, went back to, I think I went into the office on the uh, January the 3rd, 2019 and quit because mm. I just couldn't do it. Mm. Um, was that during that, leave, during that leave, did you sort of like step back and reanalyze like where your job was at and, and how you were feeling about working and all that kind of stuff or, or did that kind of all hit? On, um, on the day you went back into the office. Yeah. Yeah, kind of, they went back into the office. It was, um, it was the kind of period where I was off was very much about self-care and looking after my wife and, mm. and family. Um, and I realized I just wasn't, wasn't ready to, to go back to work. Um, and I didn't want to put Hacker One in a position of having somebody on salary who wasn't doing any work. So yeah. um, I kind of spoke to my team there and said, look, Really appreciate everything, but uh, I'm going to step back. Mm. So was that um, day one of a... full-time bug bounty after that? 
not day one. I, I took a few months, a few more months, and then kind of realized I do need to start earning money. Mm. And <laughs> that's where, where I thought, yeah, I should kind of pull my finger out and, and get starting. So I think it was like April. Mm. Yeah, actually, I think it coincided with the UK tax year. So April 6th or something. I was like, right, let's do this. Give this a go and, and see where we get. Mm. So, right. so your you'd been... your transition into uh, a, your transition into bug bounty was a little bit or full time bug bounty was a little bit more strained than most people's. I think that you know we we've kind of talked in the past before about being in a full time bug bounty position and and um, and the kind of mental stress that that puts on somebody um, and. Normally, I think you and I both agree that it, it's not prudent to go into that position without, you know, a, a decent financial runway and mm. a decent, um, or at least from our my conversation, uh, you know, a decent um, home life setup and stuff like that. Um, but that 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 transition actually happened a little bit different for you. So did, um, you know, what were the first couple months? Obviously, you were dealing with a lot of personal things as well. But from a work perspective, um, did you did you find it hard to to focus, or or were you kind of ready to get back into it after having taken um, an appropriate amount of time to you know grieve and such? Even though that you know an appropriate amount can never be be taken, but uh, yeah, enough yeah. for you to to of to course. get back into it. Yes, yeah, so it was. I mean, I've been working in security as I say for. Mm -hmm. Would have been 12 years or mm -hmm. something by that point um so security is a relatively well-paid industry so mm -hmm. i i did have the financial backing mm -hmm. to um so you have to do it without risk and my mm -hmm. wife was going back to work around the same time as mm -hmm. well and she's a, a, a management consultant so mm -hmm. again a, a relatively well-paid um uh job there so mm -hmm. with the with the two incomes that's good and and the money we had in the bank it was wasn't as much of a of a risk sure um I, I think I said to myself, I'll give it three months before I reassess, see see how we get on. Mm. Um, and if I need to get a, another job at the end of that, then I would start to look. But um, that was four and a half years ago. <laughs> <on that. laughs> haven't looked back. So, so, so yeah. had you been thinking about doing full-time bug bounty or anything prior to that? Or was it kind of just like in the in that time of your life, you were just analyzing sort of the available options, things that you'd been doing? And it was kind of a logical step to just give it a shot and see what happens. Or had you kind of been toying with that in the back of your mind that, you know, I, I like bug bounty. I'm very involved in bug bounty, obviously working at hacker one and doing Yahoo bug bounty program before that you're, you know, very in the scene, you're very in the know, your, your mind is kind of in the right place. And was it kind of just like that natural progression or, or was this something that had always been in the back of your mind for, you know, for a while? Yeah. So I, Whilst working at HackerOne, I, I was still hacking on obviously on programs that I wasn't managing, mm. um, and I, I was using that as my kind of technical outlet whilst doing less technical work mm. um, at, at HackerOne. Um, I think without it's difficult to say without how how things could have been different. Um, I I very much believe in HackerOne and, and their kind of vision, so I. I could see that I would have stayed with them um, whilst keeping on hacking in the in the background, um, but difficult to say. Mm. Did you experience yeah, a lot of challenges that, that with that sense. balance yeah. of like TPM and hacker? Because I've heard a lot of on both sides of it of like 
you know, whether it's being a triage or whether it's working adjacent to triage or doing TPM or whatever at HackerOne and also trying to do the hacking. And you mentioned that there are certain programs you can't hack on and that kind of stuff. Did you find that to be a real big hindrance that made you excited to no longer be working there? Or was it kind of just like, you know, if you were still working there, that's fine. You could have gotten around it and, and, and figured out how to hack outside of that. Yeah, I, I don't think it was too much of a hindrance. Um, I wasn't working on any of the... I think it was only one or two programs that I was working on that I personally would have had a huge amount of interest in hacking. Uh, and there are obviously a, a lot of programs available. So I don't think it would have been too bad. The, the bigger thing would have been the, the time and the, um, and the energy. So obviously working for what's primarily a, an American company, um, on UK hours, you kind of have to be a lot more flexible with your with your time to fit in meetings with with the states, um, certainly West Coast. Um, so, kind of end up working later in the evenings, which is when yeah. at the time I would have been hacking. So, yeah. uh, for example, it, it's nine thirty. It's nine thirty a.m. here in California. Yeah, <laughs> and I imagine it's probably five or six p.m. Right. in the UK. Yeah, it's yeah half five. So uh, yeah. Half five. What does that mean? Is that five thirty? Five thirty. Since it's half five, yeah, by this point, <laughs> that's one of my favorite UK uh, expressions because it's for Americans, it's extremely ambiguous as to what that means. Meanwhile, we say like quarter yeah, to quarter that, after. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. In uh, in, in Europe as well, in, in Germany, it would be uh, half six. Because they do half two and we do half past. Oh, oh wow. no way! Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh no, that's that's the worst. Um, wow. So so you know, bring it back to you know this new this new stage of life you're in with with full time bug bounty. You've been uh, I started in March of 2020 full time bug bounty, and you started in April of 2019. So you've got a yep. year a year on me, and there there are are very few people I'll say that have been able to. Um, sustain long-term full-time bug bounty. Yasin has done a great job of it. You've done a good job of it. Um, you know, it, pe people, but people often have a, a hard time with burnout and with, um, I guess, just the mental stress that comes along with it, even though their earnings might be, might be good. Um, so do you have any tips or tricks for people that are looking to get into full-time bug bounty and how to um, survive the, the mental tolls of that? Yeah, I mean, the first one is get your finances in order. Yeah. Um, I have a lot of people who come to me and, and speak, speak to me about full-time bug hunting. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I wrote something on it uh, in 2020, maybe. Mm. Um, and off the back of that, I've had a, a lot of conversations, but it's always make sure your finances in order is the first thing. Mm. Um, it was a very low-risk move for me because my previous experience and connections, I was pretty certain I could get a job quickly if I needed to. Um, I also had over a decade of technical professional experience in security. So I, I knew what I was doing and familiarity with HackerOne and some other um, open programs. So for, for people who want to get into it, first thing is just minimize your risk, make sure you've got enough money in the bank if you've got a bad run of things that could be easily three months easily have a bad run of things mm. um 
So if you're bug hunting to pay your next rent bill, that's that's not a good position to be in. Um, and then on the kind of burnout side of things, for me personally, I work, well, when I, when I am working, I'm just ramping back up again now. Mm. Um, I work about three days a week. Mm. Um, and I'm relatively strict with that because I um, do childcare the other, the other couple of days um, while my wife works. Mm. Um, and that gives me a lot of time away from the computer, so with my family, with my kids, mm. um, which, which certainly helps. And I try to only hack on programs that I enjoy. Um, I know I could make more money if I were to hack on things that didn't interest me, mm. but I'm disciplined enough to say, I want to, I want to do this, and I want to feel the joy of, of doing this. Um, if I sit down at my, on my computer and dread what I'm doing that day, that's not where I want to be. Mm. And that's one of the big reasons I've not looked to go back into full-time work is I enjoy what I do. Mm. And I set the, I set the direction for what I do on a daily basis and, and on the long term as well. Um, giving somebody else that power again, I would find very difficult. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think that's something that, yeah, I, I, I'm beginning to learn for myself now as well is like, even though I have the freedom to work less hours and, and you know, certainly I, I do take more time off than I would be allowed if I were working, you know, in, in an industry, you know, if I had a traditional job. <clears throat> but um, the ability to say, all right, I'm actually going to work four days a week or I'm going to work three days a week. Um, is something that, as weird as it sounds, I haven't really considered up until this point, um, uh, especially with the other ventures that I ha have going on. It Sometimes it works out that way, but it, you know, it's four days of hacking, one day of real estate, you know, three days of hacking, one day of training, one day of real estate or whatever, right? And so I think that's something that going into this next phase for me um, in 2024, I kind of want to set the goal of trying to cut my work hours down to, you know... Um, to four days a week or maybe even three uh, under your under your uh example here um and i think that will actually help a lot with with lifestyle balance because it is really easy to to get hyper focused on bug bounty and to um you know burn out on it really quickly so yeah that that aspect of taking a break yeah. and and having that built into your schedule um i think is very powerful yeah, it's that, and it, and it's the flexibility as well. So mm. if you're having a bad day, mm. just being able to say, "Nope, I'm done." Yeah, just just walking away. And, and or... I I'm stubborn as shit about that. You know, like if I'm having a bad day, I'm like, "No, the, the bad days are where you know your true character is defined." You know, and and I just try to push through it. No. And my, my wife is like, "You idiot! Like if you're having a bad day, and you have the total flexibility to take it off, why would you work in an environment where you're like?" unhappy uninterested burnout like why would you do that like this is in a, terribly inefficient and she's so right um yeah. and so that's such a great lesson and i'm glad to see that that's been producing you know results for you as well yeah no certainly the, the flexibility is that, that's something that i i really value so i mm. can work normal working hours or i can work mm. kind of 10 p.m through to 3 a.m if yeah. i need to or just take a day off and work on the, on the weekend when everybody else has taken a day off. So you get to do everything that's, so you get to, like, if you want to go do something, do it on a Wednesday because nobody goes out on Wednesdays. Right. And, right. Um, 
yeah. than just work on a Saturday. Well, so you don't have to yeah. compete with other people. That's the other yeah. great thing, man, especially for people that like to travel is like you can make that happen in the middle of the week, right? Especially especially if your partner can make it happen as well. It's so awesome to be able to just like show up to these sightseeing places and there's yeah, no one 100%. there, you know, at, you know, 2 p.m. on a Tuesday, you know? Um, and so, yeah, what a what a great benefit that is as well. Yeah. Um, so, sorry, I, I walked out of the room. Shift... Oh, go ahead, Joel. I, I walked out of the room, but I wanted to ask. So, mm -hmm. when you do work like three three days a week or something, do you find that your workload mm -hmm. sort of compensates back for a five day work week? So, say if you're working four forty hours a week, eight hours a day, five days a week. Um, do you find that you're working like twelve, thirteen, uh, fourteen hours on those three days? Uh, I wish I could sometimes, but no, because because you got the uh, got young kids. It's very much. Some days it will be at 1, 1 p.m. My wife needs to be online to do work. So that's my hard deadline. I'll take that, get the kids, go down the park, and, mm. and that, that's it, me, me done for the day. I can pick it up maybe when they go to bed if there's something I'm right in the middle of. Mm. But um, it is relatively strict to three days a week unless I want to kind of stay up late uh, in evenings. And some evenings they will mm. do that. Nice. How um, do you how do you organize? Really into it. How, how do you organize when you have like, <laughs> you know, you're like working four hours, <laughs> yeah. dip for three hours, come back, work for three hours, leave, hack for two? Do you, that was my do you next like question. Notes? Uh, how do you how do you do that? Yeah, badly. I think <laughs> uh, I'm I'm getting better at note taking, um, and that's that's kind of been a big push this past uh, past couple of years. Um, so I keep everything in um, GitLab. Mm. So I use actually use project issue tracking for kind of leads, potential bugs, things I'm going to look at, and have that all all in there. I'll write my whole reports in uh, in there and, and sign them off, and then copy them into uh, into the platform. Um, and I found that works quite well because it also lets me, if I am away from the the laptop and I have a really good idea, I can just jump on to GitLab, open a new issue or append a comment to an issue that I'm working on. Um, and that's been working relatively well. Um, I've let it lapse a little bit recently because I haven't been working so much, um, but I need to get back into that kind of discipline. Nice. That, that's such mm. a developer-centric approach. I, I love that. I think it's, uh, <laughs> it's funny because I, generally, like I think a lot of developers but myself especially i'm very like in favor of running it yourself and like doing all that kind of stuff but this is one of those cases where a cloud service mm -hmm. or any type of like hosted whatever is so so useful because i do the same thing with like notion for my that's what i use for my notes where if i have something come up and i just am out on the street or i'm traveling or whatever and i just think of something i can pull my phone out i can open the app i can jot it down in the notes mm -hmm. and then later when i'm in a position to be hacking I can open up my Notion and I can go through and I can see the notes that I left myself. And it's so, so useful to have just that instant being able to just write it down and then access it later where, you know, if you, you're hosting it yourself, yeah. you might be able to do that. But it, it's it's a lot more difficult and there's more loops you got to jump jump through and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. You, you know what's kind of odd to me is that it, a lot of the things that you're talking about, they're, they seem really developer-y for lack of a better word, but you're, you've never been a developer. Is that, is that accurate? Not, not professionally, no. Yeah. So your whole, your whole career has been, um, you know, uh, security. 
Um, but there are a lot of a lot of correlations, which I think is is yeah. very interesting and is probably uh, sort of a I imagine is a mindset um, just sort of base for you um, as far as that yeah. goes. Yeah, and it, it's a discipline thing as well. Mm. I I have the worst memory in the world, mm. so if I don't write it down, I'll remember it in like six days' time when it's no use to me. Um, yeah. So I I do have to do that, and it, I also find if I'm um, if I don't write it down, I'll hyperfixate on it as well. Mm. Mm-hmm. Whereas yeah. if I write it down, I can put it put it to one side and focus on what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, I've joked a couple of times in the past that I've found more bugs whilst lying awake in bed than I do at the at the computer. Yeah. Um, yeah. But if I don't write it down at that point, I just won't sleep. There's, yeah. There's not a hoop in hell. That's that's I think that's a, a great tip for anyone who needs to have a work-life balance with bug bounty you know if you're if you're a single guy and you're just like really just (laughs) trying to like freaking love the bug bounty and i I remember sitting you know before i was married and doing some hacking and i would just hack for super long sprints and i was just always in the zone in the flow go 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 but as as i've you know realized the importance of work-life balance and and you know maintaining my other relationships um the ability to step away from the computer and not lose a bunch of um you know, obviously you're going to lose your mental context for sure. But before you can do that, if you can predict by, you know, setting a timer or whatever, you know, for five minutes or 10 minutes before you have to leave, writing down where you're at currently, and then being able to come back to that, I found it's a lot easier to get back in that flow state um, when you return to it. Uh, and and it seems like that's what, what you've been thinking as well with, with sort of trying to get back into taking notes. Yeah, hugely. Um Kind of my, my next step and progression on that this mm. next year is to really flesh out um, methodologies for myself. Mm. Mm. So I, a lot of my bug hunting is very either very ad hoc, or I get a particular, I find a particular type of bug and then look around for pro, for that bug on different programs. Um, I'm just I'm not a very good. Like if you sit me down in front of a web app, I'll, I'll get bored within three seconds. Mm. Um, but if I've got a methodology, I, I know I can follow, and and that can help me pick out interesting things to look at. Um, I think that will really help me. And then if I get some source code, um, rather than just looking for, I again I hyperfixate on code execution because um, mm. that's the real big big bug. But there are hundreds of bugs I don't even bother looking for, mm. which are really big impacts. So yeah. I'm, I'm gonna my my goal for kind of twenty three twenty four is from train myself and, and really um, formalize a lot of the things that I'm doing. Mm. Yeah. So that's that's a great segue right into your, your um, you know, bug bounty hunting methodology. Joel, did you have something you wanted to add before we move to that? Well, I was just going to say that that's something that happens, I think. I, I, I certainly experienced it a lot where it's like the things that I look for is like a sliding window where over time as I find new stuff that I find mm. really interesting or new techniques or whatever, like that's what I'm really looking for like when I'm present and hacking and things that I would look for even like six months ago or a year ago are just not as interesting or not as important or not really what like I might look for it if I happen to see something and be like oh yeah like let me check for that but oftentimes I'll be pivoting into like different exploitation techniques specifically and and exclusively as I as I progress and I'll, and I'll just like kind of shift the things that I look for over time instead of looking at every single thing that I've ever looked at ever in my entire history of ha- hacking. Yeah. Um, do you how do you like manage mm. that? Do you keep like notes of 
you know, different categories or um, there's a site we've talked about hack tricks. That's kind of like this where there's different categories for like XSS, what you could do in XYZ scenario. Mm -hmm. Like, do you have anything like that? Uh, I have in the past um, and I, I've lost several versions of it. Um, <laughs> I am trying to build it up again for, again, but it's for bugs that interest me. And that, that's the key thing. I, I never want to be looking for every bug because that's going back to audit and that's not what interests me. Mm. Um, but I, I personally find XSS really quite, quite boring to look for. The only time I ever look for it is if I need an XSS to trigger an RCE or something like that. Right. Um, actually, I was talking to somebody the other day, so I've, I've only found one SQL injection bug in my bug bounty career. And I was using that to trigger another more, uh, better bug. <laughs> and, um, that's great. I love that. Yeah. They're, they're just not bugs that interest me because the fix is input validation or, or output encoding, and it's just not an interesting thing. Mm. Yeah, that's awesome. Oh, so it sounds like that's generally a, when you're very hacking. Nice. Yeah. So when you're hacking, like you're not looking at the mediums and that stuff. Like, what 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 are you generally submitting? Is it pretty much highs and crits and very selective? Like, I, I think like Justin and I have a slightly different methodology on this. Generally, like I'm very pick and choose about what I want to submit. I only really want to submit like super high quality, super high impact as higher crit as I can get type vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. And Justin views it more as like a volume is also important, especially when mm -hmm. you do it full time. And so having a flow yeah. of mediums, maybe not lows, but mediums especially is like really mm -hmm. important to keep a regular flow of income. And then working on those highs and crits is also obviously important just for big bonuses and all that kind of stuff. Dude, I'll re I'll report a low. I don't I don't give a shit. Uh, okay, I'll report yeah, a no, low. It's, it's all a table, um, I guess. No. Uh, just 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 uh, sorry. Yeah, would... Continue, Alex. Sorry. Um, yeah, so I, I definitely uh, aim for the for the highs and the crits. Um, I think my my target is kind of around one or two um, higher crit a mm. month mm. Um, on kind of the bigger paying programs, mm. and that that normally ties me over. Um, I was yeah I I was looking I wrote this down somewhere in four and a half years I've submitted under two hundred bugs um, on wow. Hacker One yeah um, so I I do go for very much for for fewer and higher impact issues where I can um, that kind of changes a little bit if we're talking about life hacking events and then pretty much medium plus will will go for those yeah, yeah. Um, again I I don't like taking the time to report lows. I, I often find reporting low issues is detrimental to spending the time on finding other issues. So. Yeah. 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 So no, on, that, on the that topic makes of... sense. That, I just ran the numbers on that. It's, it's, uh, that's four, that's four vulnerabilities per month on average. It seems. <laughs> that's pretty um, good. Which is pretty, One a week. for, for yeah. a full-time hunter that that's, yeah, that is, uh, for that uh, that's impact is just high like... quality. You've got to be pushing out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, on the topic it, of it LHGs, is. And, and so, how does that change like mm. your hacking flow? Do you um, do you pretty much only do live hacking event prep, or how much are you doing typical standard program hacking versus jumping to LHGs? Um. So I kind of have a, a a kind of all or nothing on on live hacking events, and that's um, not just effort that's performance as well um i've bombed in so many live hacking events 
like only being able to report kind of one or two mega bugs um, and I feel kind of feel like out of necessity at that mm. time mm. or I get one or two or three really high impact bugs right right um, and that, that so my, my normal focus is kind of there but it's a bit more muted if I can get one really high impact bug in the live packing event I'm happy mm. um, and then I'll, I'll work around uh, work around that um, and again, it, that also depends on who's running it as well. If I'm really engaged with the with the customer, uh, and I think Justin mentioned earlier, uh, GitHub was a good example of that last year. Uh, as soon as they were announced as, as the customer, yeah, precisely. Mm. As soon as they were announced as the customer, I went all in on GitHub. Mm, mm. So the, the normal life hacking event period is about two weeks of hacking once you know the full scope of the life hacking event. But as soon as the customer was announced, as right, okay, all in. So I think I had about four and a half, nearly five weeks of, of hacking on them. Mm. And that paid off hugely um, wow. for that event. Yeah, that's that's awesome, man. And and yeah, I, I remember the majesty of that, that performance. Uh, that will always be concreted in my mind uh, as one of the greatest live hacking event performances I've ever seen. So congrats on that. And in, in conjunction with that, I, I want to I wanna talk a little bit about um, your your bug hunting techniques, uh, but also you know let's look at specifically for live hacking events. So you know you mentioned that you're focusing on high and critical bugs, and on and live hacking events you don't get to pick your target, right? Which I understand you're normally pretty picky about because yep. you have a specific set of um, of uh, a very particular set of skills uh, that, that I was going to say that, if you weren't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that you that you are going to use to to hunt down the the high and critical bugs, um, but that apply less well to other areas just by nature of of how that is. So um, when you're going, can you explain to me a little bit about what kind of areas you're looking at? Uh, if there's any indicators to you of what might be interesting for these higher and critical bugs, because a lot of people are stuck in the area where they they're finding you know um, mediums, lows, and the occasional high, but the crit is very elusive, and you're one of the people that consistently finds crits. Um, so could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I mean, the first thing I'll look for is any kind of source code or or desktop application that's in scope. Um, or where I think I mentioned earlier, or where they're using kind of open source modules that mm -hmm. that I can access the source on. Um, that's my my comfort zone. Um, mm -hmm. So as soon as I see something like that, I'll I'll dive into it headfirst. Normally, if you see a desktop application scope of Bug Bounty program, it'll be a um, Electron or, or Chrome Chrome mm -hmm. embedded framework um, application. So you can pretty much get the source out of them easily as well to go through. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's anything that kind of hits my, uh, I guess, spidey sense of, of where an issue is. So mm -hmm. any PDF rendering, any HTML rendering, mm -hmm. um, I'll always spend time there. So I had a very productive kind of six months in the last year um, looking at uh, headless browser exploitation. Mm -hmm. um, so that was kind of kicked off with H1702 last year, I think, yep. in Vegas. Yep. Um, yes, it was. <laughs> there was uh, one target I was looking at that that had um, was using headless Chrome to uh, to render some some. Actually, it wasn't user input. I, this this is one case where I did have to find a cross site scripting. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I saw they were using an old version, so it was like, huh, 
I do wonder if I could write an exploit for that. Mm. I've not, not written one for Chrome before, but let's see what I can do. So why not try and write a Chrome exploit under pressure in a few days? Because <laughs> that sounds like fun. Right. Um, <laughs> but I, I was lucky enough, there was um, enough information out there on this older version um, at the time to, to cobble something together. Um, and did very well with that bug. Mm. Um, yeah. And that kind of gave me the... Well, I, for that sort of I, I, I was going to say, you know, on, on that note, I'm sorry to, to interrupt, um, no. but, you know, at that time, that was really, that was something really impressive that we had, that not a lot of us had seen uh, at the bug bounty scene, because, you know, you do see a lot of this stuff in sort of more of the pwn to own or like just actual, just people that hunt for zero days uh, and don't do the competitions. Um, you know, you've seen those there, but that that sort of browser exploitation wasn't something we had done, had seen a lot of in the bug bounty scene before. So could you talk to me a little bit about how you you went down that path of being, of learning about browser exploitation and um, how you did it so quickly to be able to write an exploit uh, for this specific target in, in a couple days. That seems like quite a feat. Yeah, so um, I'm gonna, I've got modest experience with binary exploitation anyway, mm -hmm. so I mm -hmm. kind of understand all the um, the principles of, uh, of what you need to do, so bypassing SLR, mm -hmm. uh, what to do when you've got control of the programming uh, mm -hmm. counter and all the rest mm -hmm. of it. I, I kind of get those fundamentals, but um, I hadn't looked at a, a full-on browser um, JavaScript exploit before. Um, the GitHub security blog had some really good um, posts on it about exploiting very similar issues mm. than the one I was trying to do. Um, so I started reading up there. I can't remember the uh, person's name who's writing these blogs and probably butcher it if I did try to mm. try to say it, but really detailed um, kind of exploitation steps of, kind of how they went about finding and exploiting some bugs. So that was a really good stepping stone um, to help me with that. And it was from that point on, when, when I knew it was possible, it was just sheer force of will and, and no sleep, I think, of that. Well, okay, so that's, I, I'm glad you added that last bit because I was like, in those situations, when I when I get in that situation, when I lock on, I'm like, I know this is possible, I got to get it done, right? Then that's when the rubber hits the road for that life balance stuff that I preach yeah. about all the time, right? Yeah. That's yeah. when I say like, all right, am I going to just brain dump onto this notepad and then go to bed at a decent time with my wife? Or am I going to, you know, sit here and write code till 3 a.m. in the morning? <laughs> yeah. And and so, I mean, I guess, no, I'm going to put you on the spot. Like, what what happened that that uh, during that event? I mean, what what did that that life balance look like for you? Um, it was relatively good at the start of the event because mm. I had no bugs and uh, <laughs> didn't have any leads. Um, <laughs> It was it was about halfway halfway through the event that I came across this target and uh, and realised it was going to be vulnerable and that's where it did kind of take over a bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But then you also have the um, kind of difference in that you're flying away from your family or or, or your usual um, routine. So going out to Vegas, I had eight hours on a flight and a laptop mm -hmm. again. So it's like right, okay, let's see what I can do there. I think by the time I landed, I had most of the primitives in place that I needed mm. to be able to prove it was vulnerable. Mm. Yeah, and then from that point on, it was uh, then trying to write a reliable exploit for the particular version in use, um, and really hammering that home. I remember, I think I, I got it at about 
um, 5 a.m. Vegas time. I, I finally popped it on the day of that. It was either the day before or the day of, of that particular customer. Um, yeah. So was and, it a full exploit to RCE or was it just like a POC where it crashes or something? Uh, so full exploit to RCE, um, but with, without a sandbox escape. Okay. So a, lo uh, a large portion of the time when you see headless browsers being used um, in a backend, the sandbox will have been disabled because it's easier to deploy that way. Mm. Um, and that makes exploiting it so much easier. Mm. Um, right. I've only done one successful full renderer RCE through sandbox escape. And that was fun. I'm not interested in doing that again, if I can avoid it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I am curious, like, do you think it's worth it taking that last like couple inches? Because I I've reported something very similar. We got paid for it at a live hacking event. Um, I think I can say who it was. It was meta. It was a hardware device and it was using an outdated Chromium browser essentially. And so what we did was we found a POC for that same version range and it was able to successfully crash it, but we didn't decide that it was really worth the effort to like push it just that last couple inches to go from crash, definitely valid. Like could, you could take this further to all the way to like full ROC, RCE POC, POC. Do you think that it's worth it hmm. to do that or will the company kind of understand? And this is kind of company by company, but generally do you think it's, it's worth it to like, spend all that time and effort developing a full working POC? Or is it good enough to say, here's a CVE for the V8 engine. It applies to this version. We can see that it crashes with this POC. You can connect the dots. Um, in my experience, every time I haven't had a full RC uh, POC, I've been like, it's been downgraded to, to a medium or, mm. or fogged off. Um, mm. The recent live hacking event, I, I had one with a, I just submitted the POC. I was like, this would be a Herculean effort to get to RCE. And they were like, yeah, here's $200. Oh, so man. Like, yeah. so oh my gosh. The, the benefit, and this is what I really found last year, was that once I had one and people learned that I had one, they would come to me and say, oh, I've got this one over here. Have you got an exploit for that? And if I didn't, but I thought there was one that I could, again, develop, I would go away and I did, would do that. So I think in the end last year, I wrote three, no, four Chrome render RCEs, um, a Phantom JS RCE and a WK HTML to PDF RCE. Mm. Um, and each one of those got used at least twice. Mm. Um, wow. In, in collabs as well, which kind of really help because once it's there, it's no effort for me to say, or very little effort, change the version numbers and some offsets. Right. Wow. So um, this is this is sort of like the the reverse today is new is like, you know, you go to today is new when you need a subdomain takeover or an XSS on a subdomain or like, you know, like some sort of cookie inject, you know, or it's some, some lower level bugs that will help you build a greater chain. And you go to Alex Chapman when you need a crazy, you know, super exploit for your, you know, uh, vulnerable-ish looking 
uh, browser renderer that's happening. That's that's really cool because that model really does that model really does work. We've seen it time and time again uh, at one of the last live hacking events. Eric took first place without having a single report that was his own. <laughs> it was all collaboration, yes. yeah, um, yeah, which which was just absolutely legendary and made bug bounty history about what the power of collaboration you know has. Um, so it's cool to see the flip side of that as well with you. Um, and, and I think that speaks to uh, your, your experience within collaboration as well, because you, you collaborate a lot with a specific set of people at live hacking events. And um, I'm sure that helps the scenarios where, um, you know, you, like you mentioned, your, your bug bounty experience is kind of up and down like that. Um, so could you talk a little bit about the, that collaboration experience and how it's helped you uh, grow as a hunter and also as it's helped your performance in live hacking events? Yeah, I mean, it's collaborating in live hacking events is always a lot more fun than doing it on your own anyway. Yeah. Um, and that, that's kind of the one of the things I always fall back on. Mm -hmm. I enjoy my job and I want to enjoy my job. Mm -hmm. um, so it's fun to just get, get together with a group of friends and, and go at it. But also the, uh, the hackers who I've been working with um, on, a, on a few events, so Archangel, Rezo, and DC. Mm -hmm. um, they all have different areas of interest and, um, and focus than me. So mm. if I fail to get my one critical, mm. then they've, between them, they've got 50 or 60 reports in um, right. that, we can, uh, that we can profit through. Um, but if I get my one big bug, then it goes, goes the other way. So it's it's been a really good good way of working for me recently um certainly like hacking events mm. and yes. and i bet yeah. that helps as well with your growth as as a hacker when it comes to like being able to see other hackers in their style as well because you mentioned before that you're you're not as strong in the traditional web vulnerabilities and yeah. having someone <laughs> like you know archangel and and rezo people that have strong web backgrounds um, and then having access to those reports as well is, I'm sure, just a, a great learning opportunity. And then vice versa for them, being able to see your your deeply technical source code powered, um, you know, mega crits, uh, <laughs> I'm sure helps them grow as well. Yeah, and that, that's kind of part of the thing as well. If you're not if you're not learning while doing bug bounty, you're, you're doing something wrong. It's mm. um, you kind of always want to be trying to improve yourself and. And your skill sets and um, collaboration is one of the easiest ways to to kickstart that. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so for like the binary exploitation side versus source code review, do you find that you're doing a lot more of the binary exploitation, or what? Are, what kind of stuff are you really focusing on now? Um, I do less binary exploitation. Um, than I than I'd want. It's always a lot more involved, uh, and it's got a lot higher costs to to doing it. Mm -hmm. So, whilst I would love to have that be my main area of focus, one, I don't think I'm skilled enough in that in it, and two, it's not as reliable income as source code review and, and other forms of testing. So. Mm -hmm. If it was just down to me, every other week I'd be doing binary exploitation and filling in other areas in between. But um, I'm not quite their skill level yet, I don't think. 
So we've talked about this a little mm. bit when we talked about source code review. We had a whole episode about it. But do you, when you do your source code review, is it more of like a sort of outside-in approach or an inside-out approach? Meaning, do you find interesting like syncs, like, a, you know, there's a command being run here? Or do you say, here's a public endpoint that looks like it, it might have juicy functionality. Let me see how I can connect these two together. Um, how, do you, how do you sort of approach a code base when you're looking for those really high criticality vulnerabilities? Yeah, so I tend to focus on the sinks and then, and then work backwards from there. So mm. as I said, I kind of hyper-focus on code execution wherever I can. Mm. And be that through uh, command injection, deserialization, um, writing arbitrary files, that sort of thing. That's that always get kind of piques my interest, and mm. um, and that's where I spend my my time. Um, I overfocus in those areas, so I know I could be finding a lot more bugs if I if I looked a bit more generally. And again, that's kind of one of my um, goals for this this next year or two. But also to bring in more automation into my kind of source code review and, and binary reverse engineering. Mm. So I've been playing around with uh, CodeQL, SEMgrep, uh, Yearn, and a few others um, to uh, kind of help with that and build up a, a methodology there. Mm. Yeah. That, Where do you that's, draw the um, line? That's a... Go, Sorry. go ahead, Joel. We, uh, there's a crazy audio delay, so it's like we keep talking over each other. <laughs> Where do you like draw the line in terms of when you're, when you're going sort of inside out, right? Like if you have a, something that looks like... Con code execution and you've flushed out sort of what you think are all the paths do you, there's always kind of that possibility that you might be misunderstanding something or there might be a connection somewhere else where do you draw that line and say okay it's time to move on and look at the next sync um normally based on my frustration level uh, <laughs> if i feel if, that if i've been hammering on it yeah if i've been hammering on it for a couple of days and really can't just can't see any any future in it. Then I'll I'll try something else, and probably I'll probably go back to it for a couple of days later on. So take a break, go back to it, um, and then sometimes I'll just outright think no no way that's going to be exploitable, and then somebody like uh, Vax will come along and exploit the exact same thing that I was looking at. I hate um, that man. I freaking hate it when Vax does that. <laughs> he he did it on one of the GitLab bugs. Um, Exif tool. Oh, I was looking no at Exit way. Tool, like, I, I checked the logs. Um, I was looking at it about two weeks before he he submitted his oh, uh, his RCE, in it. I was like, oh. yeah, <laughs> I, I can see shelling out here, but there's no way to get access to it. So I'm just going to move on. And then saw that I was like, oh, that's a big uh, bug. Man, that 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 stings. And 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 I just want to go back to what you were saying before um, when Joel asked about sources and sinks. Uh, that we've we've asked that question a couple of times. We've discussed it ourselves as well. And I think this is the first time we've had a really solid, like, no, I go to sinks, you know, a sort of response. Like, um, first, and I think that's I think that's really cool. And I think that that shows that that methodology is absolutely um, you know, an, an appropriate methodology, a methodology that produces really good results. Um, and and I think I tend to be on the on the flip side of that. And I, I like to try to go look at the sources, see where I can inject, you know, my input and, and then go down all of the routes, you know, and, and it may be because I, I don't have as good of an, a perspective on, um, you know, which, 
which syncs lead to code execution. Like I've recently been talking about um, configuration file injection and uh, just sort of if you can inject into a templated uh, configuration file, right? That there's a lot of chances for for RCE there because um, you know there's this switch of context between your your current service and then the service that it's it's building with that configuration file. Yeah, hugely. Um, and so I think maybe as maybe in the beginning it, it might be helpful for people to look at sources and then as they gain more experience they should look at syncs. Would you would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's really different different approaches for different people. I I know what I'm looking for when I'm looking um, at, a, at a source repository. Um, again, sometimes to my detriment, because I will I will focus on it. Um, mm. But I've had two recent examples. I've been doing quite a lot of work on JDBC um, drivers recently. Mm. Um, so looking at what can be done with them and. There were two JDBC drivers I found out there that I was able to find had um, Archie file read right in. Um, so that if you you can get this to connect to a server, the server can just read anything off your off wow. the connecting system or write anything to the, to the connecting system. Um, and that was I found those specifically because I was looking for the particular file writes um, and other things, and then worked back from there, working up the protocol stack and being right. Can I access this? Yep. Okay. Can I access this? Yep. Okay, can I access this? Yep. Okay, so if I implement a custom Diffie-Hellman key exchange, I can get through to this bit. So working backwards really helps me rather than working from the input. Yeah. Um, I, I think this is something that I've actually seen, and this actually goes to a, a bug that I want to talk about later, which is our, our bug collision we had at a live hacking event earlier this year. So um, forgive me for that. I, <laughs> Um, and, and we'll get to that, but I, I, I want to, I, I want to talk about this whole concept of, you know, having a, a protocol connect and, and then have that, you know, reverse connection back to the client, have, have some, have some effect on the client, but I, you piqued my interest when you talked about those connection pieces. So anything, uh, you know, anything you want to share, any little tidbits that you want to throw out there with regards to that? I mean, yeah, generally the security boundary when a client connects to a server mm. is less than when a server connects to a, talks back to a client, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. right. So there's a lot of programs assume that the client will only ever be used in an authorized way mm. um, to connect to an authorized server. Mm. Whereas if you can um, get a client to connect to a server you control, you generally have a much more privileged um, access to be able to do to do things, and I'm alluding to the bug that, that I know Justin wants to talk about. But um, I found that exact same bug in four or five different client applications mm. uh, because the original developers thought nobody's ever going to stick this on a server and connect to an untrusted right. server with it. Right. Oh, stick in the back end and connect on a trusted server. And then kind of cloud CI CD comes along and we're all using Git and SVN and Mercurial and Perforce and, and other things to connect to untrusted servers. Mm. Um, mm. And similar with um, kind of no code, uh, low code environments. Hey, let's let the, uh, the customers connect to their own databases. So here, just give us a database connection string and we'll go connect to your, your database and pull the data from you. Um, and the, a lot of the clients just weren't designed with that security boundary in, in yeah. place. Yeah. 
so it's really interesting um, place to be looking for bugs. And again, it kind of fits my, if it's a client, you can normally get hold of the software, you can reverse engineer it or, right. or look it up on GitHub. So, so I'll, I'll, uh, th that definitely is a excellent tip for anyone looking for high impact bugs there. If there's a database connection that is being sent from the server to your database or something of the like, great stuff there. But I want to, I want to go back to that JDBC piece that you said, you know, uh, so let's say I've got a JDBC configuration, uh, injection, right. Where I, where I can have it connecting out to my DB, um, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to prevent you from sharing your, your research here, but, uh, any, any specific directions you want to point us in or are, are we looking for a blog post in the future? Or is this going to, are we keeping our cards close to our chest on this one? Yeah, I mean, I'm still actively exploiting a few of these issues, okay. so keep a little bit there. Well, so, hey, uh, the audience can't tell me I didn't try because I tried for <laughs> you, audience. So, well, I think generally, if you can change the mm. uh, query string parameters on a JDBC, mm. or if you can control the query string mm. uh, parameters on the JDBC connection, you can do quite a lot. Mm. Um, a few of the connectors are getting better, so uh, I think the which was it? Uh, not DB2. One of the, the not mm. not MarioDB, MySQL or DB2. Um, mm. Name escapes me. But they, they've had two CDEs raised against them recently for this kind of exact same issue. And one was being able to specify the location of a log file um, through a query string parameter, mm. which meant you could write arbitrary ah. file output out. Uh, and another one was a JNDI injection, which is similar to the um, log4j. Interesting. Um, exploitation. Very cool. Was the, was the good, log4j good, what kind of led there. you down this whole rabbit hole of looking at JDBC or? Uh, no, I actually picked this up a few years before that came out. And then um, when that came out again, it, it kind of led me down that path, path again. So um, nice. Yeah, he was an early, an early, uh, early <laughs> doctor with log those sort of holes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> yeah man. If I'd had Log4j, that would have been uh, that would have been a good payday. Yeah, a lot, lot, lot <laughs> yeah. of near misses here, Alex. Like, come on, man. Like, I need to start so, hanging around Alex more. Um, Just everything that Alex goes well, now, well, I'm gonna write that down. <laughs> yeah, write that down right away. Um, uh, so I think uh, we're we're running to a close here on on time, but um, I did want to talk about uh, this 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 bug, and I think uh, it's enough in the past now that we can kind of. Um, that we can kind of talk about it a little bit. Uh, this this was a bug at a live hacking event um, earlier this year, and it was a RCE that, and, and this is the thing that makes me sad too, is that um, this is a, a blog post that Alex wrote up on, on a specific vulnerability in a specific protocol, uh, Perforce. And, um, and I, you know, using, to be fair to myself, using other resources and Alex's blog, um, I found, uh, you know, an RCE on this on this target, the shared target that we had, and um, and then uh, I submitted the report before Alex did. <laughs> so he duped. He du and we split the bounty, right? Because it's a live hacking event dupe. But um, uh, you know, it, it was one. It was a really um, a great example of the way that Alex Alex thinks and 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 what we were talking about earlier with blogging about things that you're passionate about. 
Um, and a perfect example of this client server trust um, sort of situation that we have because that's where the vuln was. Um, but and Alex, I, I don't recall whether I sent you this specific vulnerability before we started uh, recording the podcast. Do you want to talk to the technical details of this vuln? Uh, did you do you have the it, it fresh enough in your mind, or do you want me to take a stab at it and you can kind of supplement? Yeah, I think I've. Um... I've actually been looking at it again recently for something else. So it, it is oh, top of mind. Oh, what? Okay. All right. It's, oh. yeah, Talk it's us through it, man. Talk us through it. This is an interesting one. But it's, so again, so for, for those who don't know, Perforce is a uh, version control system, so similar to Git mm. or um, SVN, that's heavily used in the gaming industry because it's it works really well with very large files. Um, so if you've got really large assets, 3D models, that sort of thing. Um, and it, it, it's a very typical example of the... Uh, the client trust that we mentioned before. So all the um, Perforce client really does is connect to the server, and the server then says, run this command. And then so the server will say, OK, show me what files you've got. Check the hashes of the files against the files I've got. So rather than it being client control, it's server control. Mm. Um, and that, that was the first thing that kind of got my interest. I was like, well, how does it do? How does it give you new files that you don't have on your system? Mm. And it turns out it just sends a, uh, I think the command is literally send file yeah. or, um, or write file. Client dash like, write file is what I have in yeah. my report right here, which is just gold. I like, like, I love that. that. sounds interesting, <laughs> yeah. Um, so then seeing that, like, okay, right, how, how are we gonna go about, about testing this? So what do you do? Break out Python and then start trying to reverse engineer the protocol as it's going on the wire and Wireshark and, and building up byte by byte, bit mm. by bit. Uh, to a point where I pretty much had a fully functioning um, Perforce server written in Python mm. um, to kind of handle the auth, do all the rest of it to get it to the point um, where with just a login, it would be able to write an arbitrary file on the um, on the connecting system. Mm. And, and that was great. So then I think just in saying this, this bug collision on the uh, life hacking event, I, I kind of have a bit of a blasé attitude to submitting these books that I don't think anybody else is going to submit in life hacking events. Uh, and this one, I wasn't going to submit in the Duke period. I was like, nobody's going to find that. Oh, so, dude. I'll, that would have been I'll, a I'll nightmare, it, man. Yeah, I'll prove it after the Duke period closes because uh, nobody else will find it. And I was like, oh, I've got a little bit of time. I'll, I'll get it in. Holy moly. And then when I found out it'd been Duke, I was like, oh. Yeah, I'm going to start man. submitting everything to the Duke. I saw the fact that's, yeah. yeah, right. As, as soon as it was duped, I went to the uh, trader and I was like, um, can you let me know who duped? Who? Because... Who was it? <laughs> <laughs> I want to have a word. It was, it was, um, and, and, and it was, I want to say on your team as well, they took, you guys took bets on who it was, right? Yeah. And, and freak, who, who was it that guessed it was me? One of them correctly guessed that it was me. Was it? Yeah, it might, might have been Douglas. I want to say it was Douglas as well. <laughs> yeah. So I appreciated that vote of confidence. It is a uh, one of the highest honors in my bug bounty career to have duped an Alex Chapman bug. Um, so I'm sorry for <laughs> using your own blog post against you, but um, uh, yeah. I completely forgot I'd written that, to be honest. So uh, <laughs> you really? No answer, way. Yeah. So you didn't even reference back to it when you when you had. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Wow, that's crazy. Um, that's awesome. And and so I, I just wanted to go to what you were saying. You know, you wrote out a full a full 
per four server. And I'm looking at my exploit right now. And, uh, you know, I, I, I love that experience of writing out, you know, like a binary level protocol um, for these sort of things. And, you know, you said that handles the auth and stuff like that. I'm looking at my code and it, you know, handles the auth. It's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't mind that. You know, like, you know, it connects to the server. You're like, no, 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 it's fine. Yes, yes, you got it correct. You know, like, yeah. and then, and then you just, yeah, yes, you're more connected. Here's the code run. Um, and it's just a, it's just a fun vulnerability type for sure. Um, so yeah. that's awesome. Um, yeah, I think I think Joel I think Joel has to bounce to a meeting. Um, so we'll we'll bring it to a close here. Um, Alex, you can for all of you that are listening, you can find Alex on on Twitter at AJX Chapman on HackerOne AJX Chapman, uh, AJX Chapman GitHub.com everywhere AJX Chapman. Yeah, yeah. Um, Alex, thanks so much for coming on, man. Did you have anything that you wanted to uh, say as we sign off? Uh, no. Appreciate the uh, the work you guys are doing on the podcast. It's uh, it's a good one. I've had to stop listening while I walk the dog there because I've got to take too many notes. So uh, <laughs> it's... yeah, we we get that feedback often. Um, <laughs> so we, maybe we need to uh, stay on top of getting our our notes out that accompany the episodes, and uh, yeah. and hopefully that'll make for a little bit more of a leisurely listening experience. <laughs> Definitely. Um, yeah, but all right. Yeah, well, thanks so much awesome again. And, with you. Yeah. Go ahead, Joel. Yeah, no, it was awesome chatting it. with you. Thanks for coming on, and uh, yeah, yeah, we'll we'll uh, we'll probably be collabing at at some point in the future. Oh yeah, we will. All Sounds right. good. Peace. All right. Cheers. Peace.